21 messages that we're going to review today. So you can imagine um, they're going to be little short little snippets. You can find all this teaching on our website and on our YouTube uh, channel uh, if you want to go back and review these. But this is our chance to kind of review what we've talked about and then respond in musical worship. So messages one through three. We started the sermon series back in February, and we talked about what's in a name. God reveals himself into scriptures in various ways with various names. And we started this way back, and we talked about the importance of a name. Because in the Bible, naming people helped establish a sense of identity that would reveal something about the person. To know a name in the Bible was to know something essential about that person's character or nature, and it indicated that you actually had a relationship with them. Right? So that's what we talked about way back then. Is That's why I think it's important that we get to know each other's names. And so a whole bunch of hey yous running around FCC. We want to know people's personal names. And God has revealed his name to us. We can learn a lot about God's name and his nicknames in the Bible. First of all, Moses is told of God's name. And God says to Moses, I am the I am. Tell him, I am sent you. I am is the ever existent one. He is ultimate reality himself, and we notice that our God exists in Trinitarian form, and each member has a unique title that reveals the unique characteristics of each member of the Godhead. So Abraham said that God the Father was El Shaddai, that he was the almighty God, that he was El Olam, he is the God of all eternity, or God from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Abraham also said that he was Yahweh Jireh, Jehovah Jireh, my provider. And that was made plain and simple and clear to him on the Mount of Moriah, right? Where God provided instead of having the knife plunge into the belly of his son. Hagar says, you are El Roy. That means you are the God who sees. The God who sees me in my distressful moment of life. You are the God who sees. David said that you are Yahweh El Rohi because he is my shepherd. David, before he was a king, was a shepherd. He knew what it was like to, to, to lead the sheep. And he says, God, you are my El-Rohi. You are my shepherd. And Daniel says, you're the ancient of days. And there's many more, but these are just a few. And we also know that God is spirit. God the spirit is referred to as the living breath of God. He is our counselor and our comforter. He is the spirit of adoption. He's a deposit for greater things to come. He is the spirit of glory, the spirit of grace, the spirit of truth, the spirit of life, the spirit of wisdom, and the spirit of understanding, and the spirit of the living God. But then we talked about the Son of God. And we took some time to look at the different titles that people refer to Jesus as, or Jesus refers to himself as, but the sweetest sound to our ears was found in Matthew 121. We're, we're told this, we say it, he, the angel said, you shall call his name Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. That should be the sweetest sound in your ears because we need to be saved from our sins and Jesus offered himself for us. And so Proverbs 18.10 says, the name of the Lord is a strong tower and the righteous man runs into it and that's when he's safe. Running towards the God who can save him. So that's the importance of a name, but then we talked about the aseity of God. Now, this is very philosophical in nature, I get it, and some of us are just still scratching our heads. What does that mean, the aseity of God? We actually took two weeks to cover this attribute. That word aseity comes from the Latin with the prefix ah, which means from, and say, self, meaning that God exists in and of himself and for himself. This is mind-blowing to us. God, listen to this, try to track with this paragraph. 
God is the self-existent one. The one existing before time or energy and space had ever been created. He is a being worthy of worship before there were beings that were created with the capacity to worship. One being existing in three persons preceding creation. He is everywhere and he is nowhere because where exists in time and space. But he was timeless before time had been invented and boundless before boundaries came about. What? (laughs) The eternally ultimate glorious determiner who has never become but has always been. He simply is. From eternity to eternity, he is the I am, the ultimate reality. He has never been caused upon by anything, and he exists outside of all of our known categories of description because all of our categories of description have been supplied by him in the first place. He is unaffected by time and motion, and as theologians say, he's the sole cause and the final goal of all things. The truth be told, he is simply beyond us. When we try to sit under the teaching of this word, there's parts of it that's like, man, he's just simply beyond us. And remember, we read through the, the scroll of Ezekiel <laughs> to start off the sermon series. Like, what was that all about? What did Ezekiel see? It was, he had a hard time describing what God was like. And what we found out is like, similes don't work with God. If I said God is like blank, we couldn't fill in that blank. And I, and I inadequately said God was like a bathtub. Remember that? And I didn't get struck down by lightning. It was amazing, right? God is so gracious, right? He's not like anything. And even God calls us into question. He says in Isaiah 46, 5, he says this, To whom will you liken me and make my equal and compare me that we may be alike? Nobody, no one, no thing. God challenges us to come up with a concept that might define him, and we can take a stab at it, but we always come up short. And what I said to us is that's very good news for us. Because that means he's the only one that is not dependent on anything outside of himself, and that means for us that he's not dependent upon you for anything. He's not dependent upon you for anything. This reality should completely free us to love him and serve him with our whole lives. Think about this. School started up this week, right, for a lot of us. Do you ever feel like you're being pulled in a thousand directions hmm? and needing to take care of a thousand responsibilities? The truth is that we're shackled with responsibilities left and right. We have work, we have family, citizenship, church, friendships. We actually have to give to these various relationships and responsibilities in order for them to be successful. But it can exhaust us and frustrate us. And all of these things seem to be vying for attention at the same time. But you know what Jesus shows up on the planet and says? He says this, come to me. Hey, you who are laboring and are heavy laden, come to me and I'll give you rest. Why don't you take my yoke upon you and and learn from me? Be my disciple. Let me teach you about life in redeemed humanity. Me. Learn from me. I'm gentle. I'm lowly of heart. And what will happen? And you will find rest for your souls. Let me give you some rest. You don't need to do anything except come and collapse. I don't need anything from you. He is not dependent on you for X, Y, or Z. And that should be grateful, praiseworthy news for us. That God doesn't need us, but he desires a relationship with us. And for that, we should offer him 
our unrestricted praise. And that's what we want to do now. God, we thank you for this opportunity to sing these songs of worship to you. That you are our God. That you have revealed yourself in the scriptures to us by name. And we can know different things about you. But there is no simile that works. And I pray that we would recognize that you are offering us rest today. So I pray that we would just come and enjoy resting upon you, the everlasting God, knowing that you are the king on the throne and that you have moved heaven and earth to bring us into a right relationship with yourself. God, hear our grateful praise this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand as we continue on in music. All right, where are my fourth graders at? Are there any fourth graders here today? I know my son is in fourth grade, so it might just be you, buddy. If you're in fourth grade, go ahead and stand up. I just want to wave at you and say hi. Can you stand up if you're in fourth grade? Oh, we do got more people. Excellent. Hello, I'm Sean. I'm a pastor here at the church, and you guys can go ahead and have a seat. Um, so we are pumped. Oh, yeah, and I played football with you on Friday night, didn't we? He's tough. Don't, don't play football against him. He'll knock you down, all right? Um, uh, so we're excited to have you here with us in our big church. Now, I know that some of you are, like, really bummed because we have awesome, awesome children's church teachers, and you're really going to miss out on that. But we're excited that you're here to listen to God's word being preached. Um, now, did you get a letter from me? Some of you should have got a letter from me if you're in our roster, and I gave a joke. Do you remember what the joke was? Did you read the letter or just say, oh, man, it's a long, boring letter, right? The joke was this. Why did Noah not want to bring um, the, the, who did he not want to bring on the ark? Do you remember that one? He didn't want to bring the cheetah because he was a cheetah. Get it? Sorry. That's a bad one. That just landed flat. I know. You're like, please, can I go to please children's church, right? <laughs> right. All right. Well, this is big church, all right? And we're going to talk about something really, really, really big. We're going to try to talk about what God is like. That's what we've been talking about in our Behold Our God sermon series. Now, I ask a question. Have any of you ever been to Red Robin? If you've been to Red Robin, say, I have. Okay. Do you know that they advertise that they have bottomless fries there, right? That's a big draw, right? For, especially if you like French fries, bottomless fries. Bottomless means that there is no bottom to the basket, right? You can dig and dig and dig and get your fingers all the way down to the bottom and get them all greasy and your stomach is ready to explode, but you won't reach the bottom because the basket of fries should be bottomless, right? This is how they advertise it. Let's go ahead and watch this video. At Red Robin, if it comes on a bun, it comes with bottomless fries. And when those disappear, we keep them coming. Gotta love bottomless fries. Red Robin, yum. All right, there you go. So have you seen the commercial before, right? Bottomless fries. Now, as, as I look at that, to be more accurate, I had some free time this week, and I was going to edit some of this commercial to improve it a little bit to make it more accurate. This is what they should have said. At Red Robin, if it comes on a bun, it comes with bottomless fries. And when those disappear, we keep them coming. 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 Gotta love bottomless fries. Oh, yeah. There we go. Don't you think? I think, I mean, they had 15 seconds. That's how, they, that much, I, you could have sped it up and had all that. They could have gotten their message across, right? More than enough, right? 
unending, unlimited, never-ending, endless, and incalculable amount of French fries are available for you at Red Robin. Who wants to go to Red Robin today for lunch, right? Like, yeah, that sounds good, right? Talk about an impossible business model, right? <laughs> We're going to go broke if we all go there and just, hey, just order our fries, please, right? Um, that's what happens to us when we try to think about God. David actually says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's too high, I cannot attain it. And we want to talk about who our God is. And the first thing we need to say is that God is all-knowing. God knows the present, he knows the past, and he knows that which is to come. Here's the deal, fourth graders, right? God knows every tear you've ever cried. Every time you woke up in the middle of the night and you kind of were scared. He knows all the hair on your head and every time maybe you compared yourself to somebody else in school and like, man, I wish I was like that or like this, right? He knows how you've fallen short. He knows your deepest, darkest secrets. They're all visible to him. And he knows when you sit down and when you rise up, he knows your secret thoughts. He is too wonderful for you is what David says, but he's made himself available to you. And so David writes in Psalm 139 verse 4, even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. Yikes. Talk about an extensive and vast amount of knowledge. He knows the words that are going to come out of our mouth before they come out of our mouth. Think about this. Have you ever played hide-and-seek in your own house? Normally, if you play hide-and-seek on your own in your own house, like you dominate because you know all the good hiding spots, right? And it's really easy to find your friends because they don't know all the secret places to go yet. But maybe when you play at their house, it's a lot harder because you don't know the spots as well as they do. When you play at your house, you have more knowledge, and that puts you on an advantage, right? Well, God knows everything. He is supremely advantaged. And not only that, he is present everywhere. So God is all-knowing, but God is also everywhere present. This is what really smart theologians call God's eminence. That means that God is present in all of his creation, and yet he remains distinct from it. In other words, there is no place that God is not. David says in that same chapter, if I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bet in the depths, you are there. He's in every hiding spot. You can't hide from him. Some of you are like, well, maybe if I go in the way back of the closet or if I go underneath the bed, right? No, he's still there. I want you to think about Adam and Eve for a moment. You know the story. After they sinned, what do they do? They try to play hide and seek with God, right? They go hide. And on a surface level, as you read the Bible story, you say, aha, Pastor Sean, God isn't all-knowing. God isn't everywhere present because God actually says to Adam and Eve, where are you, right? You're like, oh man, I didn't think about that. Rats, no. That's not a question that he didn't know the answer to. What he was really saying is, where are you at in relationship to me? We used to go walking together all the time and now you're away from me. Where are you? Think about this. Has your mom and dad ever been telling you to do something or asking you to do something and you were thinking about something else at the same time and clearly not listening to them? And then your mom or dad says something, you're like, hello, are you listening? Where are you? Now, if you want to get in big trouble, you could say, mom and dad, I'm right here, right? Don't do that, right? Because you know that's not what they're asking. What they're asking is, why are you apparently absent from the conversation, 
You're here, but you don't really seem to be here. And that's what God is saying. You are here, but you're absent from me. You are away from me. And God was right there with them in the garden after they had sinned, but they would soon be kicked out of it. But that tells me that he knows if and when we will sin, but that he's also right there with us, and he'll provide a way of escape if we just hear him say, hey, hey, where are you right now? And then we need to admit to him how bad our heart is in that moment and follow him out of that moment. And God is everywhere present, and God is also all-powerful. We're talking about some big stuff here. God is all-knowing. God is everywhere present, and God is all-powerful. I joked with our congregation when we preached on this. He isn't just mighty God. He is almighty God. Right? Do you guys remember the song? My God is so big, so strong. Oh, that woke you up, right? So strong and so mighty, there's nothing, my God. What? Good. You guys are all good singers, right? There's nothing that our God cannot do. He's so big. He's so mighty. Not just mighty. He's almighty. There's nothing that my God cannot do. God is in control of everything, and he does all that he's pleased to do is what the psalmist says in Psalm 115. And that's really good news for us because he's pleased to give his son for us. So I want to sing about now the all-knowing, all-powerful, everywhere-present God who is on our side. Many of you have memorized this Bible verse, Romans 8.31. It says this, if our God is for us, who can be against us? Amen? If the all-knowing, everywhere-present, all-powerful God is on your side, you're doing pretty good. Let's stand as we sing about how God relates himself to us as our God who has given his son for us so that nothing can be against us. Well, there's a lot we can discover about God, and really we've only scratched the surface of who he is. And we want to talk about now how God is immutable, meaning God is unchanging the doctrine of God's divine immutability or his unchanging nature means that God is free from all change. Who would like that, right? <laughs> Unlike all of creation that exists in time, he is outside of time and he's free from the development of history. And we who find ourselves located within time where everything changes, we can experience him as unchanging. And since he cannot change but has always existed in a state of perfection, we can say that he is perfectly worthy of our trust. There's nothing else that you need to anchor your life to except for him. He is the only anchor because he exists outside of time. He's changeless. And so God thunders to us from the prophet Malachi's pen. He says this, I, the Lord, do not change. And the ramifications of that, therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. I've, I've related myself to you. I've made promises to you, and I'm going to make good on them. I don't change. Some of you know this from an Awana verse. Psalm 90, verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth, before they were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. That means that God's plans cannot be altered. Psalm 33, verse 11 says, The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. So what he decides to do is as good as done because his speaking is his doing. Think about how creation came about, right? Think about the creation story, the narrative, right? 
Let there be blank, and there was. God speaking was his doing. And that tells us that God's word can never fail. What God reveals to us in his word will come true. Numbers 23 verse 9 says, God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. He has said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? Proverbs 30 verse 5 says, every word of God proves true. And he is a shield to those who take refuge in him. So if you need, if you feel like you're being bombarded, and you feel like you're being attacked, like get behind this. God, what have you said? What have you said about your commitment to me? What have you said about persevering during times of trial? And I want to hide myself here. I know your plans can't change. I know your word never fails. So let me trust in what this says as you revealed it to us. Because this is truth. And that's what Pastor Danny preached on one week. That there is truth in the world. Even though our world says there's not, or you make up your own truth. That's not what Pastor Danny preached on. That's not what this word says. God is true. God has revealed the truth of his existence in a general way through creation, but also in a very special way through his word. And then the word made flesh that dwelt among us, Jesus Christ. Because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And Jesus also said in John 17, 17, sanctify them with the truth. Your word is truth. So there is truth in the world. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 24 through 25 says, all flesh is like grass and it's glory like the flowers and grass. Like they're pretty cool for a while, but the grass will wither and the flowers will fall, but the word of the Lord remains forever. The plans of the Lord that are sent out via his word will come to fruition as sure as death and taxes is what I said. God's speaking is his doing. This is God's word. It's to be believed in all that it teaches, to obeyed in all that it requires, and trusted in all that it promises. And one of the things that we learn from this book is that God is the God of righteousness and justice righteousness and justice now our world is like foaming at the mouth for righteousness and justice and this this book says that god is his the foundation of his throne is righteousness and justice we took two sermons to talk about how god is the righteous ruler and the just judge and one of our base texts was psalm 89 verse 14 righteousness the hebrew word sadiq and justice mispat are the foundation of your throne so it's talking about God being a ruler, and then there's this throne that he's sitting on that's righteousness and justice. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. So he said that God is a righteous ruler. He's a ruler. He's a king. He rules. That's what kings do. They rule over something. They reign over something. They have the rightful authority to execute the standards that have been established by the rule of law. Well, God is the king of kings, and he's capable of doing whatever he wants to because he himself is the lawgiver. He is not bound by anything outside of himself, so what takes place under his dominion is right. He is the righteous ruler. What he says is right, and what he determines to do is right. For those of you in Awana, here's another Awana verse that you learn. Deuteronomy 32, verse 4, the rock, his way is perfect, or his work is perfect. For all his ways are what? Justice, a God of faithfulness without iniquity. Just and upright is he. He rules rightly and he judges justly. 
Now, we know what a judge is, right? Probably a bad rendition of it if you watch like daytime television, right? But we know what a judge is. A judge makes sure that, that the law is followed and that the jury, uh, the jury determines the facts of the case. Depending on what is discovered, a judge will then issue out the appropriate sentence with authority. He will do that which is fair and equitable and appropriate, whether it's in retribution or reward. He will do that which is just. And we said that God is like that. He is the just judge. And the primary reason God is able to judge justly is because of what Paul says to the Romans in 2.11. He says, for God shows no partiality. God doesn't play just his favorite players. We've all had bad coaching experiences potentially over the years when it feels like the coach is just playing certain guys or girls instead of the players that might be the best at the position. God doesn't make unjust distinctions based off of surface things alone. Remember when Israel was looking for a king and they actually parade all of Jesse's sons out before him and the crowds were very impressed. But God says to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or height, for I have rejected him. For I do not look at, right, the things that people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but, but the Lord looks at the heart. So God does not make judgments based off of outward appearances alone. And some of you are like, well, good, <laughs> right? Yeah, really good. But he's able to peer into your very souls and make an accurate judgment there. Yikes. So what's he going to see when he looks in there? What's he going to see when he looks into your heart? Will he see a cold and calloused, dead and distant heart? A heart made of stone? Or will he see the new creation heart that he put in there that beats with the very heartbeat of his son because we've placed our faith in him? And now as Paul tells the Ephesians, that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. This is what sets him apart. This is what makes our God a righteous ruler and a just judge. He won't change, and he, faithful, will always remain the same. So let's stand as we sing about God's faithfulness. Throughout all generations, throughout all seasons of life, he has committed himself to us, and he's offering us a new heart, one that's not made of stone, and one that beats with the very heartbeat of Jesus as we place our faith in him. Let's sing, Great is Thy Faithfulness. Well, we're nearing the end, even though, once again, we've only scratched the surface of who our God is. We're going to quickly review messages 20, 11 through 20 right now, as fast as we can. We talked about the love of God, and we did this on two different occasions. The second time we looked at this, we realized that God is really, really good at expressing love because he's been doing it for all of eternity. We read from John 17, verse 24, when Jesus was talking to his father, he says, you loved me before the foundation of the world. If you ever wanted to know what God was doing before the mountains were brought forth, he was loving eternally his son in the power of the spirit. And out of the overflow of that contented, delightful relationship, God created little human image-bearing creatures, humans that could resemble his likeness in the creation. And even though we fell in sin, God demonstrated his love for us by giving his son to us and for us in Christ, God was reconciling a fallen world to himself. God's self-giving love was demonstrated with maybe the most famous Bible verse, one that you'll learn in Awana, week one, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his son. His love was demonstrated by what he was willing to give, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. 
even while we were sinners and enemies, is what Paul says to the Romans. And why was the Son given and sacrificed for us? It's because God is holy, and sin needs to be dealt with accordingly. And we talked about the holiness of God. Psalm 99, verse 9. It's like an appropriate verse. Like right before you get to 1,000, like 99, 9, right? Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain. Why? For the Lord is holy. Do you remember the word? Kadosh, right? Kadosh. That's the sound that is made when you drop this massive boulder into the center of a pond, right? Kadosh. It makes this big, massive splash and creates ripples that travel from the impact zone out to all the surrounding shoreline. Everything in the pond has to deal with the kadosh, with the holiness of God. So we looked at the story of King Uzziah, and at the year that he died, Isaiah had a vision in which he saw angelic beings calling out to one another and saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, and the whole earth is full of his glory. God's holiness demands recognition. In Hebrew, the use of repeating things was common practice. And so when we looked at that text, we said that God isn't as holy. He's not holy, holy. He is holy, holy, holy. Kadosh, kadosh, kadosh. And so we made a really big deal of this because it's a really big deal. In fact, I pointed out to us, that there are angelic beings that God created whose sole purpose for being brought into existence is to day and night never cease to say, holy, holy, holy. Here's another Awana verse for you, right? And the four living creatures, each one of them, with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy. Holy is the Lord Almighty who was and is and is to come. Day and night since the inception of them being created. That's all they do. That's their sole purpose. It's a big deal. And if you think I'm exaggerating, trust me, I'm not. He is utterly holy and we need to recognize this because God is also, based off of that holiness, jealous and wrath-filled the jealousy and wrath of God. Now these were hard messages to think about, but this is what God revealed himself to us in the word as being a God of jealousy and wrath. And we had to kind of wrestle with that. The wrath of God is the necessary attribute that flows out of God's holiness. We would actually be surprised if this wasn't part of God's character. God would be inadequate if he didn't hate sin because sin is what separates us from that which is infinite joy himself. It steals, it kills, it destroys, and so God hates it and has decidedly to decisively destroy its power for those who believe in what Jesus did for them because he was smashed for us. The wrath of God is not a blemish on his character. The wrath of God is not some dark side of God that he's trying to keep secret. It's very clear if you read your Bibles. You'll see it all over the place. 
To the degree that Paul writes to the Romans in chapter 12 of his epistle, he says, Brothers or beloved, never avenge yourselves. Don't take matters into your own hands, but leave it to the wrath of God. When the God who judges justly and who is a righteous ruler, who has all power, all knowledge, and all authority, when he sees the wrongdoings that are happening to you, you might get all worked up and you might want to do something about it, but he's like, hey, let the God of vengeance take care of that for you. Let the God, the, the God of wrath take care of that for you. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And so when we hide ourselves in Christ and we trust him even through times of suffering and injustice and horrible things that are happening to us, we can pray what the psalmist prays at the beginning of Psalm 94, verse 1, where he says, O Lord, God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth. What gives him that boldness when he knows that he is a sinner deserving to be smashed? Well, that sinner who knows that he deserves to be smashed knows that all the wrath of God that was supposed to be poured out on him and us has already been absorbed by the one-time sacrifice of King Jesus. And that brings about a great experience of peace. And Pastor Danny took a week to preach on that, the peace of God. Do you know that seven times in the New Testament, complete number there, right? Seven. Seven times in the New Testament, God is referred to as the God of peace. Now, one can only begin to imagine how important this is in our world today when everything seems to be disordered and out of control and confusing and right is wrong and wrong is right. God eternally exists in a state of wholeness in shalom and peace, and he works his ways in this world by bringing order out of the chaos. And that's why those who follow after the God of peace are to be controlled by the Spirit of God whose fruit is peace, love, joy, peace. And we can be at peace in this world because Jesus said before he was leaving, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. It's, it's yours. You have it. It's not as the world do I give it to you. Like not just in the absence of your problems, but even peace in the midst of the problems. So let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Maybe that's the message you need to hear today. And it it gets all the sweeter when we think about these next three messages. The patience of God, the mercy of God, and the grace of God. Now, in the Bible, it's actually kind of hard to distinguish the differences between God's patience and his mercy and his grace. And I think the reason why is because they're all so good. <laughs> it's like me in junior high, like when I'd go to a place to try to get a fountain drink, right? Do I want Pepsi or do I want Coke? Do I want Orange Crush or Sprite? Do I want root beer or Dr. Pepper? Well, they're all good, and they're all just a push of the lever away. So here goes nothing. Let's fill her up. You put them all together. You ever done that? It's called a suicide drink, right? I think if you drink it, it kills you automatically, right? The patience, mercy, and grace of God are all so good that we want them all, and they're all offered to us in Christ. And when you take in all these attributes of God into your lives, the old nature is dead. It dies. When we receive his patience and his grace and his mercy, the old man dies because nobody sins in moderation. And because of our sin, outside of Christ, we existed in a state of misery and distress. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We deserved immediate punishment, but instead of slamming down the gavel and opening up the ground beneath our feet and sending a lightning bolt from heaven, Jesus endured our rejection of him for a long time. 
He's patient and merciful and gracious. And here's the unique flavor distinctions of each one of those, although they all taste really good. The patience of God tells us that he's slow to anger. We talked about God's long nose. It takes him a really long time to get red in the face for his blood to curdle, right? It takes him a really long time to get mad. God actually withholds punishment towards those who sin over long periods of time. And it's because he's patient, and not only that, because he's also merciful, rachum. Remember, that's when Asher was walking around saying raccoon all week long, right? God is merciful. He's rachum. He's compassionate. There's an intense emotional connection he has with us. He actually empathizes with us in our misery, and he sent Jesus to know experientially what it's like to be human. And he actually walked a mile in our shoes, and he walked up Golgotha's hill with it. And God is gracious. He's chanun. He's favor and giving in nature. We only deserve punishment, but he gave us kindness instead. So basically, God says, I'm a God who feels an intense connection to an undeserved people and extend to them loving kindness and favor. What a wonderful God we serve. And we took a better part of a year to study the characteristics of God, and we only discovered the fringes of him. But the fringes are enough to make us want to respond in right living and enrich praise. So let's do that now as we close out our service through a time of musical worship. Let's stand as we sing. Please remain standing for the benediction because there's one last message that we didn't cover, and that was the joy of God. Seven times in chapter one of the Bible, we see this phrase, and God saw that it was good The seven-time repeated phrase doesn't communicate to us just God's approval, but it shows us his pleasure. This is what's happening on page one of the Bible. It's a depiction of a God who is brimming with delight. He's expressing an internal satisfaction and pleasure and joy seven times over on the first page of Holy Scripture. We must see this. Why? Because then throughout the rest of the Bible, we see a God who expresses joy and shares his very own joy with his people. And joy can personally sustain you and strengthen you in times of trial. And it communicates to a watching world the superior value of the gospel to those around us. And it will actually protect us from the pervasive and the persuasive power of sin. Jesus, for the joy set before him, what did he do? He endured a cross and scorned its shame. Moses said no to the fleeting pleasure of sin because he had a superior joy that he was after. And joy is what's held out for us as the prize at the end. One day, maybe today, maybe today, you will enter into the joy of your master. God, I pray that we would be a joy-filled people, that we would look for your return, that we would say, amen, come Lord Jesus, may it be today where Joy that is held out for us as the prize at the end will actually be apprehended by us and we'll take it in and we will enjoy you. Until that day, God, if it's not today, help us to say no to the fleeting pleasures of sin. Help us to endure our own crosses, the instrument of torture that we take up in order to follow you. We thank you for how you've revealed yourself to us in scripture that you've even just given us the, the glimpse of who you are. It is amazing. And now, God, I pray that as we go our separate ways and as we gear up for ministries this fall, that we be able to put all these things into practice. We thank you for being the only God worthy 
of our praise and our adoration, and we give it to you. We pour it out to you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for being here. I know it was a lot to take in today. We hope to see you out on Wednesday night as Awana starts up. If you want more information about our ministries of our church, make sure you reach out to the office staff, and we'll let you know. Thank you for being here today.